1: Spears has been living under for more than a decade. In a new article in The New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize winning author Ronan Farrow and co author Gia Tolentino writing that just hours before Britney's bombshell 20 minute statement in court two weeks ago, the pop star called 911 to report she was a victim of conservatorship abuse. <laughs> They write that night, members of Spears' team began texting one another frantically. They were worried about what Spears might say the next day, and they discussed how to prepare in the event that she went rogue. It was at that court hearing where fans finally got to hear from the 39-year-old herself, passionately describing to a judge how she says she's been isolated, exploited, embarrassed and demoralized by the conservatorship that's controlled her life and finances for the last 13 years, asking that it be terminated. A conservatorship is typically granted for the elderly or someone unable to care for themselves. The New Yorker reporting that in 2008, a judge gave power over Britney's life to a team, including her father, after a hearing that lasted just 10 minutes. The day after, Britney was committed to a hospital for a second time as she was caught in a bitter divorce and custody battle. A former friend of the Spears family whose testimony helped create the conservatorship now telling the New Yorker she regrets her actions. At the time, I thought we were helping and I wasn't. And I helped a corrupt family seize all this control. According to that former friend, Britney's mother, Lynn, thought the conservatorship would only last a few months.
2: Hi, Jess. It's fantastic to have you on Crime Analyst. I'm really pleased that we could carve out some time to speak to each other at long last. So please introduce yourself to my listeners.
3: Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to chat to you. Um, okay, so I'm Dr. Jessica Taylor. I am a psychologist and I'm the director of Victim Focus. We work all over the world to challenge the way that women and girls are treated, the way they're perceived um, when they've been subjected to male violence. So, you know, it's a, it's a real mixed bag of things that I do. So I, I'm an author. I do a lot of TV and media at the moment. Um, and I work quite heavily with government, police, local authorities, private companies, and charities to try and shift some of the um, most dominant ways of thinking about women and girls who, you know, have been traumatized, they've been abused, they've been raped, they've been harassed, stalked, things like that. So we do that using research, consultancy, teaching, creating resources, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, it's an, it's an interesting interesting bit of
2: work to be doing not easy stuff at all and we're both tackling violence against women and girls or more importantly male violence because that's really what we're talking about um and you are an author i mean there's so many things that you've done you've got your phd and you then wrote your book women are blamed for everything which seemed to go viral pretty quickly um which is about explaining the culture of victim blaming And you've had amazing endorsements. You know, I quote various parts of it as well when I'm training, but you've had endorsements from Dawn French, Caitlin Moran, um, J.K. Rowling, from so many people who you've literally blown their socks off when they've read the book. Um, Perhaps you can, you know, describe to my listeners why you wrote the book and maybe the thing that surprised you the most about writing the book.
3: Yeah, so... I guess. um, So I did my PhD, which was in forensic psychology, and I specialise in the the psychology of victim blaming and self-blame of women and girls. And when I finished that, I always wanted to create an accessible version of it because I have a real bugbear around research um, not being accessible and being held behind paywalls and things like that. So um, I try to do as much as I can that is free or affordable and is always accessible. So um, I wanted to create something that would hold all of my ideas and all of the literature, all of the evidence and all of my studies in one place. So I wrote Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. And I actually self-published that. I I had no real interest in going and like finding somebody who was interested in it and getting published or anything like that. I just wanted to create it and know that it was all in one place so that if somebody was like do you know you know how i can read about the literature of victim blaming and women's experiences i could be like oh yeah i wrote it into this book here you go um and i didn't think anything more of it to be honest with you like i i didn't i had no idea that it was going to blow up the way it did i put it out on pre-order um through my own website published it and printed it myself And it just went huge. But I mean, I guess like the reason that I wrote it is because I've spent this is my 12th year in practice with women and girls. There are all sorts of work that I've done. I've only been out of direct frontline work for a few years. So generally it would be case holding and working in rape centers in the criminal justice system, in human trafficking and child sexual exploitation, working with teenage girls and stuff like that. So I've not been out of practice that long, really, and I still do a lot of consultancy in practice. So I feel like I've still got a good grasp of what's going on. And the victim moment was disgusting. I just, met, you know, in my entire career, everything that I ever did, every role that I ever held, every single day, was comments about women and girls, comments about what they look like, how they behave, what they were wearing, what their background is, whether they've got a mental health diagnosis whether they've ever retracted before whether how fast they told the police whether there's any evidence why they didn't cry why they've got no injuries and it it just it got to the point for me where it was exhausting i was sick to death of I hearing the same thing it got to the point especially when i was managing the crown courts where i could script court cases i knew what was going to get said i knew what was coming next you you sort of get to the point where you're oh, no, I know what's coming. And it and did, over and over and over. Um, it was just imposs- it was impossible for these women and girls to get justice. It really was. And, you know, the process itself was oppressive and traumatic. And that was when I really started to get interested in, you know, like, how, why do we do this? Like, why, why are we so obsessed with reframing women as the problem when they've been raped and they've been murdered? You know, I mean, you'll know yourself, like we've got cases where women are dead because a man killed them. And we're still nitpicking about what she was wearing or the fact that she had a Tinder profile as if any of that is relevant. So, you know, that sort of stuff was what really motivated me. I wanted to I wanted to explore why we did that and what our obsession is with that. And then I wanted to put it all in one place so, you know, that anybody could read it, really. And um, just this week. I've not told anybody else this yet actually I've not had a chance to announce it but we've just agreed um Portuguese and Spanish translations of the book which will help the book to you know go out wider which I'm really excited about so it'll um yeah I just didn't expect why women blame for everything to be as successful as it was and then yeah I got all those endorsements and by like, you know celebrities contacting me all the time saying they'd read it and it just blew my mind honestly I just was not prepared at all <laughs>
2: Well, huge congratulations and congratulations on your marriage as well. You've had a lot of incredible things happening and I just want to acknowledge that. But I think the book is just so timely and I know you've got another book out, which we'll talk about in in a moment. But just to go back to some of the things that you said, I love that you make it so practical and accessible. You know, a lot of my work has been about that and people are like, why haven't you finished your PhD? Why haven't you done that? Well, because I've been working frontline, I've been trying to change culture. I've been trying to change laws. I've been working cases to help real people. And oftentimes I do experience that people write PhDs and all these papers, but they're not accessible. People can't read them. And does it really change anything on the ground? That was always my question. Does it change anything on the ground? Does it change anything for women and girls? And if the answer is no, I don't really see the point of it. And so that really chimes with me. And you've always been a very unfiltered, practical voice in terms of what's happening, what's going wrong, and challenging a lot of the myths and the stereotypes, and you are so spot on. You know, the headlines that consistently, even present day, erode women, or well, she's just the wife, mm-hmm. and then we see a CV trotted out for him of how great he is, even though he may have killed his wife and children His whole CV is trotted out and she's just the wife as if she's just possession and she just becomes a footnote. Or even a judge says, well, it's when she did X that he did Y as if it's causal. And the blame is so, it's it's at a subconscious level, isn't it? In everything we write, consume, hear, listen to... There is layered misogyny, and I want to get on to the, the misogyny and patriarchy, but I think your book is just such a timely piece that's so practical and accessible that I highly recommend everyone should read. Was there anything in there that really surprised you about anything that you found when you were doing your PhD um, I mean, as a practitioner, you experience cases like I did all the time, and you see what goes on, you see women being let down, you see the war of attrition that they have to face. If they come forward, well, why didn't you come forward sooner? And when you do come forward, well, we don't see it as serious and we don't prioritise it. And then when it goes to court, well, did you scream? Did you shout? Did you say you didn't want that to happen? Well, did you scream loud enough? And there's Mm. constant questioning of of a woman. So we know that on a practical level. But was there anything that when you put lots of cases together and you wrote the book that that stood out for you, that you didn't expect to see?
3: I don't know if there was anything that I didn't expect. I remember, um, because obviously the uh, the PhD, I was still working whilst I did my PhD. So I did the PhD part-time and I was still actually working actively in child sexual exploitation, anti-human trafficking, all the way through the PhD. So I was still sort of dealing with it day in day out, and then going home and sort of at night time and evenings writing the doctorate up and uh, doing the doing the research. And I think um, one of the there was a few sort of light bulb moments for me. The first was that the progress that we talk about that we've apparently made does not exist. That that one for me is is massive. There's organizations out there, huge charities, governments, individuals, influencers, whatever, saying, Oh, we've made loads of progress. We've come so far. You know, women are being treated differently now. Victim women's much less likely now. It's rubbish. Like, I, I just, I, I can't, I cannot state clearly enough how much I disagree with that. And the, um, Doing the PhD meant that obviously I had all this time to look back at years and years and years of evidence, decades of literature, studies, cases. And what was so interesting is that the same messages and the same narratives about women and girls that are being said now were being said in like 58, 61, 72. Like th- these are, you know, these are messages that apparently don't exist anymore, and women don't have to deal with that kind of misogyny and that kind of victim blaming anymore. And yet, you know, I'm like, for example, I was like working in CSE and in human trafficking of girls and writing it up at the same time, uh, you know, writing up studies that were done in 1961 and then going into work the next day and reading a, a missing persons file for a, a little girl who's been trafficked around the Midlands where the police have basically said she's promiscuous, she asks for it. She went out wearing, you know, a lipstick and a low cut top. Like, you know, you've got sort of professionals going, oh, we don't do that anymore. It's not true. None of it's true. So I think it really did, doing the PhD at the same time as practice, really drove home how disconnected everything is.
2: I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey, chilli and zucchini and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, F-A-C-T-O-R factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. And so then like to come back to your point about like
3: accessibility, I was a I stuck out doing my PhD. You know, I didn't do a masters. I did a a degree at the Open University that I did part time. I didn't, you know, do any A levels or anything like that. Like I I did, uh, I did well in my GCSEs, but I'd left school a year before my GCSE and didn't go back to school. Like I don't really have what would be classed as, you know, an academic track record or whatever. And I don't come from. A family with where anybody had ever been to university or anything like that you know and um I had the two kids by 19 neither of which I'd planned and I was you know trying to study and then by the time I got to do my PhD at 25 which I'm not gonna lie I talked myself into like I just I just rocked up at a university and was like I want to do this and they were like, who are you? <laughs> and I was like, I know what I'm doing. I know what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And I wrote this 5,000-word proposal, went and had a meeting with these two professors and was like, let me in. I can do this. Like, And I just talked my way into a PhD, you know, but it wasn't until I got there that I realized it didn't fit in. I was under the impression that you go to university to debate and learn and meet loads of different people and like engage in how to change the world and use your brain. And what I got was this really stuffy, elitist, classist, racist, misogynistic institution where I was supposed to be quiet, respect all the male professors, do what you're told, take on a load of unpaid work and read articles about stuff where somebody's made an argument that would that could have taken them six words, but it's taken them four paragraphs. Do you know what I mean? It was like, how are you making this information so difficult to read? And I got to the point after a bit where I was like, am I stupid? Like, why is this stuff so inaccessible? Like, and so I just at that point I thought there's gotta be a no, I'm just not I'm I'm not colluding with whatever this is, like this elitism and this sort of ivory tower type education. You know, and then I remember um, I'd, I'd had some findings. So, one of my unique findings is that I created a psychometric measure that can measure victim blaming in the general public of women and girls, which is called the BOSFA. And, you know, that was a massive achievement for me to invent a psychometric measure and to um, prove it works. And, um, you know, like, I was still seen as, like, oh, she's that northern girl from the council estate that's doing that PhD. And nobody was very comfortable with me being there. You know, I decided at that point that I was going to make my work accessible to everybody. And even that was met with a lot of confusion. It was like, why are you doing that, though? And, you know, I got offered this huge publishing deal like years prior um, for this top journal in forensic psychology that for most people would have been like a dream. And I got the contract through, I remember it. And it was about all my work in, in you know, victim blaming and about my psychometric measure and everything. And I remember reading it. I was so excited. My supervisor was like, Jessica, this is amazing. You know, you've not even completed your PhD, you've been offered this. I was just blown away. Anyway, read the contract. I was about to sign it. And then it was like, basically saying that they had total copyright, that they could sell it wherever they wanted, that it would be behind a paywall, you know, it'd be in these top journals. And I was like, what? I was like, they're going to they're gonna sell, like, sell it. And my supervisor's like, yeah, of course, it'll be in, you know, it'll be on a paywalled journal. It's a top journal, Jess. And I was like, but then how will people read it? And they were like, well, they can read it if they have an academic institutional login. And I was like, but most women don't have one of those. And they were like, right. And I was like, well, why, why would I put it in there then? You know, like, for me, that made no sense. Like, because I wasn't used to all this academic etiquette shit that I've not learned how to do. I didn't know any of it. So um, I had this argument with our supervisors where they were like, it is in your best interest as a young academic to take this publishing deal, you know, about your victim-blaming work. And I just couldn't do it. Be, like, I, just, I honestly, I just couldn't do it. I never did it. And I, I, I had an argument with them and said to them, they are going to take my stuff, own the copyright, and sell it, and I am not going to have control over whether I can even. There was a clause in that contract that said that I was only allowed six free copies of my work.
2: Of your own work.
3: Yeah, that they would then own yeah. for the rest of my life and until after I've died, and they could just keep selling it. Uh, anyway, that was my first. That was my first ever brush with understanding how much of like a pyramid scheme academic publishing actually is they take that work from you as an academic they put it in journals that are turning over billions a year so women and girls that we're working for they'll never read that stuff they will never be able to read about rape myths or victim blaming or trauma responses or all of the evidence based around male violence because they're not deemed important enough to have a login to get access to a journal that would cost them, you know, $49 to read for 12 hours or whatever the hell it is. That was when I started rejecting all forms of like academic publishing. And that's why I went down, you know, the self-publishing route with the book. I just, I didn't want any part of it. So, and it's, it's been interesting because I think I've won as many allies as I have enemies through this because I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not towing the line anywhere. Really I don't fit in anywhere. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, journey to tread. And I do wonder sometimes how people will look back on it when I, when I don't know, when I'm older or when I'm gone, like how will people will people follow suit? Will they decide, actually, I'm not going to put my stuff in these paywall journals. I'm going to put it out for free like Jess did. Or I don't know. It just it, I do wonder because I get a lot of young academics getting in touch with me saying that they've decided to publish their stuff for free in the same way, which I think is quite
2: nice. Well, it certainly shows that you're a tour de force and you lead by example on your mission of publishing things that are accessible to people. And that's not an easy decision that you took there, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, when I look at the work that you've done and just who you are, you don't just talk about it, you just do it, you get on with it. And I think that that's such an important thing for young girls and women to see, actually, that we don't have to ask permission that we should be doing what we feel is right rather than feeling that we have to ask permission to do it. And I know that that really chimes with you too. And I think too often we do feel that we have to wait to be asked, that we have to be polite, that we shouldn't speak out. And many of us are groomed to feel that way from, you know, children. We're little girls are taught to be polite. We're never sat down and told these things, but we osmos it from everything that's around us, that we should put other people's needs above our own, that we should be making everybody else happy and not ourselves. And I think so much of that is rooted in our childhoods that it's like the weather, it's just there, it's all around us and you've broken that mold. And I have to say, when I'm training professionals, police everybody, I shatter their worldviews every day by talking about not their childhood specifically, but just how little boys and little girls are schooled, positive and negatively reinforced, and how we're groomed. And unfortunately, girls and women are groomed to be second class, second rate. And you know, I've just finished watching LFG. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's about the women's soccer team who have been pushing for equal pay. And they've actually had the Federation tell them, you are biologically weaker than men. You do not deserve the same pay. This is 2020, 2021, where little boys and little girls are seeing that messaging. And you are just blasting through all of that and making it very clear that girls and women should know their own worth. So I thank you for that. And I also just wanted to say that you're very astute understanding of, let's go back to 40 years, 50 years, what's changed around male violence and violence against women and girls? Well, I've been covering the, on Crime Analyst, the very prolific case of a serial killer who was attacking women in the north, predominantly the north of England. People know him in the media as the Yorkshire R-word. Even his moniker is about sensationalising him and giving him power. Yeah. So I never call him by his name or by his moniker. But I've been astounded just given how many women he attacked that A, have never been linked, but B, the tactics that the police were using back then, 40 years ago, are the same tactics that I heard post Sarah Everett, 40 years on, where households were getting door knocks from police officers because this was in my locality. I've got a house in the area where Sarah went missing. And my neighbours were calling me and messaging me and asking me to put things on social media about Sarah when she was first missing. So I heard very clearly what was going on from my neighbours and friends who were getting door knocks from the police. The women were being told not to go out. Not to go out late at night. And I just... Was absolutely gobsmacked. 40 years on, they're being given, told, well, they're being told exactly the same advice as what happened in Yorkshire, Manchester, and surrounding areas, Mm. where women are consciously and subconsciously made to feel that we are responsible for our own safety and responsible for male violence. It made me absolutely see red again because it happens every day. But in a case like that, then you had the commissioner coming out. Cressida Dick saying, well, this is a rare event. Well, femicide isn't a rare event. We know that. We track it. We know it's a woman every three days who's killed by a man and with domestic violence, one every four days. And so it's not a rare event. And then we hear things like it's isolated. It's an isolated incident, they say, every time a woman's murdered. Well, one, it's not isolated. There's normally a pattern and a continuum and... It's much more common. And so all these messages go out, that girls and women osmose every day. And it's so important, isn't it? The right messages go out. Now in police training, I make it very clear. I've just trained South Yorkshire police. And I say to them, if you're the one doing the media, please do not say it's an isolated incident. Even the word incident makes it sound like it's a one off. Yeah. Please don't say that this is rare. Because it's not. We're giving all these wrong messages. And please don't tell women not to go out as if we, changing our behaviour, would stop the problem. You should be focusing on your top 10 to 20 violent men. What are you doing about them? Because we need to change this conversation, don't we?
3: Do you know what's really interesting about the whole women don't go out stuff is that if you were to directly say in public to police or government do we have a male violence problem they'll be like no you're just hysterical crazy feminists or whatever but you you turn it around and say well why are you asking women to stay in the house if you've not got a a societal wide problem where you can't control male violence why do women need to be in the house if it's just a one-off or if it was just a one-off and it's so rare why is your advice?" to blanket not go out (laughs) because exactly the the only reason you would give that advice is if you felt the risk was so high that that women are at constant risk outside so they should stay in even that makes no sense because the majority of all women who are going to be raped abused or killed are going to be killed by a partner or an ex-partner they're going to be raped by a partner or an ex- partner they're going to be abused by partners ex-partners and family members so even the advice around you know, don't go out, don't wear headphones, don't get on the tube, don't get in a taxi, don't get on a bus, don't walk home on your own, you know, all of that. Don't walk your dog, don't jog in a park. It, none of it really captures the prevalence and the reality of male violence, which is that we live in a misogynistic society where millions of men globally will harm women and girls in their homes every single day as a matter of course it's absolutely normal for that man to treat women and girls like that so you know it always interests me when you know police forces and government sort of lean back on the whole uh, individualism self-preservation tactic type advice oh you know women uh, don't walk somewhere with your headphones in i mean i don't know do you remember when they used to say don't wear your hair in a ponytail do you remember that? Yeah. You don't wear your hair in yeah. a ponytail because a rapist will run up behind you and grab your ponytail. Like, there is literally zero evidence for that. <laughs> like, we're just making yeah. this up now. It's it's your ponytail's fault. Like, it's just, it's amazing watching um, people in authority duck and weave the real cause of all of this you know, all of these murders and rapes and abuse and and sexual exploitation and trafficking, that the real cause of that is that we've got millions and millions of violent, abusive, misogynistic men in the world. You know, that's, but they they won't say that. They won't say that. I mean, I, I had a local authority a couple of years ago who asked me to peer review some of their materials on domestic abuse and on sexual violence. And they sent him through to me. And they were pretty standard. They were for training social workers, family support workers, youth workers, probation, stuff like that, Kafka officers and that sort of thing. And um, I got to like the third or fourth slide and it said there is no difference between like the victim statistics. Uh, in, in like, women and men. So it was like, anyone can be a victim of domestic abuse. Men are just as likely as women to be a victim of domestic abuse. There's no difference whatsoever. And anyway, I wrote back to them, and I was like, where have you got that from? Like, like why have you made that so neutral? Because that's not true, is it? Because all of the evidence suggests that it's women that are the majority victims, and it's women that are most likely, you know, to be killed or raped or abused by men I was like but also the research globally and statistics from the fbi moj uh, very clearly show that sort of 95 to 97 percent of all these offenders are men committing these types of crimes and i was like so why have you taken all of that out and they said well because it's offensive and it needs to be more neutral and i was like not at the expense of lying it doesn't because you can't train professionals a load of lies like because it amazes me now that we've got to the point in um where we are in our waves of feminism right now if you read like dale spender's stuff dale spender it she's like second wave radical feminist wrote loads about you know, language and the way that men sort of control, oppress and twist women's ideas and language for themselves. Right. And Dale Spender wrote in the 70s that with every wave of feminism and women's empowerment, you will get a much larger wave of misogyny that will come up against it. Right. Because as soon as women make any progress, men will shut that back down. And I've been really interested in the last couple of years. I believe we are seeing one of the biggest most powerful waves of misogyny we've ever seen. And I think that's because of things like the Me Too movement, because of women like you, me, you know women that are in the media talking about abuse violence harassment trauma all of these things are happening we've got platforms we've got technology like this in this wave that wasn't it, what didn't exist in the second wave didn't exist in the first wave so in the third and then what some people call fourth wave feminism like we've got all this technology we're breaking international boundaries we can talk you know i i'm talking to women who are doing you know uh, feminist activism in Brazil. It, you know, in like Germany, in China, in in uh, Croatia, none of that was possible. So we're more powerful than we've actually ever been. We've got more technology, we've got more connections, we've got more women. You know, we and then because of that, we're going to see another wave then of this real dangerous misogyny, which is, I think, is where you get incel culture from, men's rights activism from, um, uh, men go their own way type culture. It's this just massive anger and hatred for the fact that women are developing their own, you know, this this next huge wave of empowerment, that we're going to get this hatred kick in and try and shut us back down again. So I think that's what we're seeing now.
2: Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out-of-the-door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you quaff to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics Beauty Products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing – For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new Sheer Strength Lip Plumping Peptide Gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips. Six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's thrivecosmetics. Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash analyst for 20% off your first order. Even the
3: other day, I did some consultancy for the media industry, I can't really go into any more detail than that, um, in Britain. And I was told to my face that the, the media industry working with women, like famous women, has come has come a massive way. Loads of progress has been made. Women aren't subjected to sexism anymore. They're not objectified. They're not sexualized.
2: Absolute bollocks. Totally agree, which is why I just let that hang there for a minute. You said so many things there that are so important You know, firstly, making stats up or making neutral statements about violence and who it impacts and who is committing the violence just takes us nowhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not in the business of feelings here. We're in the business of trying to keep people safe and save lives. And that is a very important focus for all of us. It's why we do what we do. And so, just making up statistics, and I see that so often. Even with female genital mutilation, I read a policy document that once said it happens to boys. It happens to boys and men too. Well, yeah. no, it doesn't. Female genital mutilation does not. The, it, we we continuously get into being, I guess, distracted or made to feel that we have to be politically correct about violence when it happens to women and girls, but we have to stay very clearly on the mission and making things up. I mean, some of the things that have recently more, well, more recently, I will say, Jess, that have blown my mind are things like discovering that Stockholm Syndrome isn't real. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's something that was created by a male psychiatrist. Yeah. I mean, that just blew me away when I spoke to Jess Hill and she told me that. And I'd read her book. And it made me wonder because, you know, I've trained my backgrounds in forensic and legal psychology. It made me wonder how much I just accepted as a student because it was written in a textbook or because someone was lecturing me on it. And it forced me to go back and look at things with a very different lens. And then I understood Walter Cannon's, you know, research from the 30s on fight or flight of what happens when you feel there's a genuine, credible threat to your life. Well, that fight or flight syndrome, he studied men and men only. And that blew me away that you study men, but what I saw in my casework consistently is that women either collaborate or freeze. Yes, you may get some who might fight, you might get some who fly and run, but the majority will collaborate because they know they need to talk their way out of it or they will completely freeze. And I just thought, yeah. well, there's no female data in this. How is that even possible? And therefore, what I kept continuously seeing was male detectives, male lawyers. Well, what do you mean? You just did you scream? I mean, did you tell him you didn't want it? Did you ask him to leave? Did you pull your legs you know, together? Did you And it made me understand, well, that male detective has probably A, never been in that situation and B, they're schooled in fight or flight. There's only two reactions. And all of what we've been taught and consume has obviously been heavily male dominated without any real questioning. And I know that's something you feel very strongly about, but I think to a lot of professionals, it's news to them because we've accepted these models Uh, that have been fed to us and and what's also staggering about it is like with Stockholm syndrome there was no data there was no data on it it was just one male psychiatrist on one case and he never even spoke to the woman and she said he never spoke to me and he was wrong in what he said but he still wrote it up as a syndrome and it's still something quoted every probably every week I hear someone quote Stockholm syndrome at me and I have to say you know that's not a real thing it's incredible, isn't it? Uh,
3: yeah, people people don't know what to do, do they? Because, I mean, I'm literally, I feel like these days I am in the business of telling people that doesn't exist. Like, I feel like that is, like, my job and has been for several years now, is people going, sort of going, well, it's it's attachment disorder or like, oh, it's Stockholm Syndrome or it's trauma bonds or, or like or that, this personality disorder. I'm like, yeah, no, those things don't exist. <laughs> like, it's amazing how much research. Um, I'll give you one which is really interesting. that I used to, you know... Try and teach when I was so I, I teach at different universities. Um, well, did do, do before COVID. Um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm an undergrad, master's, or PhD when I'm teaching, I try to show them the origins of our belief systems now, right? So, you're talking about this these years and years and years of accepted, um, you know, just people talking about Stockholm syndrome as if it's this, like, really, a it's a proven syndrome. It's a thing. Uh, but actually, a lot of it's hearsay, and it's the fact that a man said it uh, usually uses subjective methods. I mean, look at the state of the stuff that come from Sigmund Freud, psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory, and then things like, you know, uh, penis envy and this. Stuff. I don't even want to get into the state of that stuff. But, you know, one of them that I teach heavily... Is, um, is something from uh, victimology and criminology called victim precipitation theory, which originated uh, just almost about 100 years ago now. But despite the fact that it's now seen as like, oh, what a stupid theory! It was 100 years ago. It has influenced everything in victimology and criminology and criminal psychology ever since. So, victim precipitation theory was again, you know, written up by a man uh, who at the time I think was what he called himself, a victimologist. And he wrote in, um, you know, in articles, but also in a top magazine. I'm trying to think which one it was. I've got a feeling it was the Times magazine or something like that. But, you know, back then it was it was very, very prestigious. Uh, and he wrote that he, he had proven a theory that all crime occurs because the victim precipitates it by their behaviour or by their actions. And that criminals will only pick a victim if the victim gives off some sort of message that they're vulnerable in some way. So he argued that, you know, if you are a new business owner, then you give off messages, which means that you're more likely to be targeted by fraudsters. And if you are... Walking home at night and not concentrating, you give off a message to somebody to mug you because, you know, you're not aware of your surroundings. And And then he also gives, and I quote it in Why Women Are Blamed For Everything, I quote it in the book. He writes, and if you are a woman who consistently nags your husband, you give off the message, you know, to be beaten up or raped or killed. And so he talks about how a victim always precipitates the crime. And that, it's not, that all crimes should be seen as equally caused by the victim and the offender. That the victim gave off something, and the perpetrator reacted to it, and that's why the crime occurred. Now that might sound daft now, but if you consider while you were listening to me how relevant that is to today's practice, people are always trying to pick out what did the victim do wrong, what messages is the victim giving out. You know, were they naive? You know, were they too trusting? Did they know? Did they spot the signs? Why didn't they report? And then we're always looking you know, for what's wrong with the victim, a lot of research in forensic and clinical psychology, in my opinion, is obsessed with finding the characteristics of the victim and what it was that caused the perpetrator to target them, despite the fact that there's no evidence for these theories whatsoever. But they've endured, right? They've become extremely popular and they impact everything from police assessments, social work assessments, child protection assessments and needs analysis and all sorts of stuff. We we've now got to the point where, you know, this vulnerability theory that, that that came out of victim precipitation theory, that only the vulnerable are targeted to be abused and raped and killed and violated and that their vulnerability is what a perpetrator can sort of see. You know, I, I come across that in professionals all the time. And I say to them, none of that's true. None of that's real. And yet people believe that to be true.
1: <laughs>
2: it's yeah, amazing. I, I people are schooled to look for those things as what you did what you said how you dressed how you behaved but it i mean it's so egregious in so many ways when you think about cases but it, as a theory it sounds bonkers but when you see it in practice every day and particularly with women and girls and you know i'd really like you just to say a little bit about your your second book i know you can't say too much but, you know, I do want to get on and speak a little bit about Britney Spears and what's happening to her, because it really does encapsulate a lot of what we're talking about, yeah. doesn't it? Of, you know, perceptions and, and vulnerability and control and misogyny. But I know your new book out, I mean, I haven't read it because it's on pre-order at the moment, Sexy But Psycho, Uncovering the Psychiatric Labelling of Women and Girls, and it's been billed as, and I'll quote, a challenging and uncomfortable book which seeks to explore the way professionals and society at large label and sexualise women and girls.
3: Yeah, that honestly, I am so glad I've got this book out of my brain, It is. it might be one of the most important things that I've ever written and it might be the most important thing I ever do write and it has been burning in me and I'm so glad it's out and in a book. <laughs> so the book is my attempt at essentially showing the world that psychiatry, the mental health movement, psychology has forever oppressed women and girls. It is not a friend to women and girls. The, the These movements that encourage, you know, mental health diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis, treatments, medication, all that sort of stuff, they are not compatible with female empowerment. They're not. They're they're the opposite. They are seeking to position us as crazy, and so we are non-credible. And so, obviously, that is very relevant to what's happened to, to Brittany and, you know, something that I've been really worried about for several years. And, you know, the book is... I'm really excited about this. I am also nervous. I I spent some time in whilst I was writing the book. There are certain chapters in that book that I nervously wrote. Like I'm writing it thinking, oh, my God, Like I'm going to cause chaos with this chapter. Uh, And it's because some of these things have never been said or uh, alternatively, they have been said. They've been said by women and they've been said by women for decades and nobody listens to them and now all of a sudden I find myself with this powerful platform and so I have the power now to go right now you're going to listen now you're going to listen to women and we're going to put it in a book and we're going to make it all official and then suddenly people are going to care about it and like it's going to be you know the first time for a lot of the women that I interviewed for the book as well that they've ever been able to honestly tell their real story of being pathologized, of being, you know, trying to report male violence and then being shipped off to a psychiatric ward, to a mental health team, to their GP, to be told that she needs to take pills for the rest of her life. Like, this has to end. And I want to be instrumental in ending this deliberate, systematic pathologization of women and girls. So it's almost like, you know, it's a book of, History, psychology, psychiatry, all of these real life stories of the women, you know, who took part in in the interviews for the book and and were, you know, amazingly gave me just so much detail and so much of their lives that were massively harmed by professionals who believed that those women were crazy. But, I, you know, that's the other thing that I want to say before we get into the Britney Spears stuff. Do not be fooled by language around so-called mental health. You know, and you hear this all the time where they go, mental health is the same as physical health. It's just like breaking your leg, except it's not, is it? Because if you break your leg... You don't get sectioned where nobody will listen to you. And no matter what disclosure you make, everyone says you're crazy. And if you refuse to take the medication, they'll forcibly inject you with more medication and then isolate you for a few months and not let you come out and take all your money and take your kids off you. It's not the same. Mental. The other thing that with the mental health label, right, is that it's a deliberate um, fluffing up of a term that's actually never changed, because we call it mental health now. And if you say mental health issues, people go, that's offensive, you can't say that. But what psychiatry and psychology actually call it, underneath all the glitz and the glam and the campaigns and the publicity, they are known as, and they are still defined as, mental disorders, they are known as psychiatric disorders in abnormal psychology and functioning so do n- never ever be swayed by the the fluffy flowery glitzy language of mental health it's a way of distracting you from the fact that they are still diagnosing millions and millions of women a year with psychiatric diagnosis that will change their lives forever so like the the book is it's gonna I'm gonna I might like put it out and hide somewhere for like get a bunker or
1: something
2: (laughs) no it sounds excellent Jess and so much of what you just said I can understand your nervousness about it because it's challenging the status quo in in every way and it's Changing or it's challenging pharma culture. You know where women are over medicated for for trauma effectively. Yeah. And I see that every day in my work. Women diagnosed with borderline personality disorder were actually they have trauma. They were traumatized when they were Absolutely. younger. It's complex PTSD, and actually they are treatable. And yeah. with someone who's trauma informed, they could work with them. But now they've been pathologized. Now there's a stigma attached. And it is primarily what I do see women who are stigmatised and pathologized in that way. You know, thinking again about... Cliff, And I use his initials PS. Well, it was termed that... I mean, for me, having looked at his behaviour, it looks like he was a sexual sadist and a psychopath. But he chose, he chose very clearly to use power and control and to terrorise women, and he enjoyed it, and to put them in fear, to put them in pain, and he was sexually gratified from that. When you break it down, that's what he was doing. Yet multiple psychiatrists assess him and say, well, he's heard voices, because he tells them he's heard voices. And they don't medicate him, by the way, and they look for every reason for why he did it, listening to what he said, to excuse his violence towards women and girls. And to treat it as a form of disorder rather than actually what he was doing was... It was about his male privilege, his entitlement. It was about power and control when you break it down. And yes, I do believe he was a psychopath, but that does not absolve him of criminal responsibility. But he became a patient rather than a prisoner. Whereas women are pathologised in a different way, aren't they? They're seen as a cold, calculated psychopath, the way that they're labelled in the media... And so the way that we treat men and women, even within the system, is very different. He had everything that he did almost excused by multiple psychiatrists, actually, and he was transferred to Broadmoor, just really on his say-so, that he wasn't sexually deviant, which blows my mind when you think about how women and girls are treated and just how storytelling is really important, isn't it? You talked about platforms, and storytelling, when when I'm training, I get people to think about Adam and Eve and how Eve was, you know, the one who ate the apple and Helen of Troy who started the war and Pandora's box was opened by a woman. Yeah. You know, all these stories that we've all listened to and heard that have been written by men about women being the temptress, being the person who does the bad thing, witches, mainly women who talk about abuse, burned at the state. Well, we're not burning women anymore, but we are pathologizing them, we are discrediting them, we're not listening to them. And so Britney Spears is a clear example, isn't yeah. she, who's had her voice taken away, which really her voice was her instrument. We all listened to it for many years, and then she's yeah. completely uh, demonised, I believe, by the media first off, and by men in the media first of all you're now going to hear a clip from an ABC interview with reporter Gia Tolentino from July 5th. Interestingly, Gia is now saying, following her in-depth investigation with Ronan Farry for The New Yorker, exactly what I opined about Britney being framed by the media as being mentally ill due to a number of incidents being caught on camera by male members of the media after Britney lost custody of her children and wasn't allowed to see them by Kevin Federline. Now, I opine that she may have been suffering from postpartum depression in special report number four with Lonnie Coombs, which dropped on July 1st, but was recorded on June 28th. You'll find the link to Gia's interview and the New Yorker article in the show notes. Here's what Gia had to say.
4: Yeah, I think it's important to note that those two incidents, the night she shaved her head, the night she hit the paparazzo's car with an umbrella, they were directly preceded by her driving to Kevin Federline's house, asking to see the children, trailed by photographers and being turned away. And, you know, I'll just point out that at the time of that breakdown, Britney Spears is 26. She's had two children within about a year of one another. She got divorced while nursing her two month old second child. And she was so blisteringly famous that photos of her were making up a quarter of the revenues for some photo agencies. You know, paparazzi followed her around everywhere she went. They jumped out of moving cars, chased her on foot. They shot long range photos into her backyard. Every mistake she made made national news. And many people we spoke to suspect that she had postpartum depression and don't remember anyone speaking to her about it. And I can just say, you know, if I had experienced even a day of early motherhood under the circumstances that she she did, I would have self-medicated and I would have broken down.
2: And even with Justin Timberlake, well, yes, he has apologized. But actually, that's when things started to slide for her from this very sexualized young girl, and yeah. you know, your book is about the sexualization where she's yeah. made to be an adult, even though she's a child and she's sexualized, and now she's being completely infantilized, isn't she? It's like the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. T- yeah. Tell me your thoughts about all of what's going on.
3: I completely, I completely agree with that. I think the way that okay, so first off, Britney followed the Disney trajectory from cute child star. And then they pull them out of the limelight, the girls, uh, probably about 16 to 17. They change their image and they put them back out as sex symbols, but they're still really young. Right. And they still have their child audience because, like, for example, with Miley Cyrus and Selena Gomez and, you know, like Christina Aguilera. This goes back decades, actually. And if you watch what they do, uh, they they have them doing all the Disney stuff and all their acting and singing and stuff. And then they uh, pull them out, and then they completely shift their image, and they shove them back out again. And they are, you know, these sort of overly sexualized, uh, objectified young uh, women, teenagers, essentially 18, 19 years old. And that's what happened to Britney. Same thing. You know, she went through that, and that is, in my opinion, an inherently abusive and exploitative experience for her. That comes with an immense amount of, you know, very, very powerful dynamics where she's always at the bottom of that power dynamic because this is men controlling her career, reframing her. You know, her first major hit is her dressed as a child singing baby hit me one more time. Right. This is this is a woman who has been subjected to male violence over and over again in all of its different forms. She was extremely famous. And then, as you say, the media harassed her relentlessly and enjoyed it and pushed her to the brink as much as they could. They chased her around. You know, they did everything they could to get a rise out of her and to get her to react. And then when she did, they turned gaslight, point the finger and go, look, she's crazy. Right. And. The thing is about that is that people joined in and thought that was hilarious and amazing and brilliant. The British tabloids do it, international, the, you know, the US press did it and it got to the point where she was literally, I, I know you'll remember this and like, this was when I was like maybe 17, 18, she was known as like crazy Brittany Like she's crazy Britney, you know, and like, she's unstable and she had her kids taken off her and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I was, yeah, I was probably like seven, 16, or maybe between 14 and 17, something like that, when that was happening. I had no concept of this whatsoever. But even then, I remembered thinking, they're hounding her to death. Like, I would be very surprised if she didn't die. And then she sort of, from my memory, because this is me doing this as a, a member of the public, she just disappeared. And I remember just thinking, oh, britney has gone. Wonder where she went, and I remember thinking maybe she's hidden from that from the land right to try and cope. Right? What I didn't know was all the other stuff that was going on. I had no knowledge of that. I didn't know that they'd intervened with the kids. I didn't know she had injunctions. I didn't know all the stuff that was going on with her dad starting to control her. And for me, it was about uh, you know I was saying to you earlier about two or three years ago. I st- I just came across her Instagram because I didn't I didn't used to use Instagram at all. I started using it for work. And I just came across a video of her and I couldn't believe it was her. I was so shocked. And then I remember just binging her account and going through it. And for me as a professional, every video I was like, red flag, red flag, red flag. I was so worried. And I was just thought, this woman, whatever is happening to her, she's traumatized. She's medicated heavily. You know, she's got sometimes she's got makeup on that looks like it's been there weeks, um, uh, you know, that she's she doesn't appear to be connected, like her her vision's not quite right, her eyes aren't quite stable, her body language is off. She worried me so much. And then that was when I started to see her fans were commenting underneath, being like, give us a sign, are you being controlled? Is there something wrong? Show us yellow, do something. And, I, you know, I feel very strongly that the fans had it right from the beginning, the Free Britney movement and the... The two women that spotted it at first, the two young women that spotted it, that started that movement, were bang on the money straight away. And, you know, I just think that the fact that they have put so much pressure um, on her dad and on that entire sort of enterprise has been you know, developed to exploit her. I am so proud of that fan base. They have done an immense amount of lobbying and activism there. Um, And they were, and interestingly, on the term of pathologization, they were frequently framed as conspiracy theorists and crazy. Her fan base were positioned as crazy as well, that they were, you know, making this stuff up and that none of this was happening and stuff like that. And then I think when, I think one of the, You know, I've been really worried about her for a long time, that she would kill herself um, to try and escape this level of control. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't blame her. I actually think that considering how many years they've had total control over her body, her reproduction, her life, her relationships, what her house looks like, literally everything about whether she can leave, what she can spend the money on, how much money she can have. One of the things that really, really angered me, I cried most way through the Britney documentary, was the way that they have simultaneously managed to position her as so crazy and unhinged that she can't possibly have control of her own estate or make any decisions for herself, and she needs daily medication, and she had teams that were medicating her and keeping her sedated, but apparently she was well enough to perform every night. That makes no sense. There is no way that they can argue that that makes sense. If you are so concerned about the welfare of a human being, you don't put them on a stage every night whilst they're medicated. None of that makes sense. So, you know, for me, this is one of the most public cases of pathologisation and exploitation of a woman that we've ever seen. And I honestly genuinely hope that she gets complete freedom and then she rinses them I, I honestly hope that she ruins them all
2: i thought it would be very interesting talking to you of of what you might see as well because i agree that conflict of she's so unwell and yet within a year of the conservatorship hearing she was working yeah. and You know, multiple jobs, not just one thing. She was doing all these Vegas, you know, her Vegas residency and filming and albums. And she was achieving doing all of it. So where is this person who cannot have their own autonomy, who cannot make decisions on the most basic level of her own human right to decide whether she has an IUD and stuff that actually, Jess, we shouldn't even know about. No, You know, the, the public shouldn't know about these things that are so personal, but it tells me that she's desperate, that she wants people, and, and that's what she said, wasn't it, that she doesn't want this behind closed doors. She actually wants the public to hear what's happening to her, and I think maybe she's been empowered, actually, by her fan base. I hope I mean, so. as, you, as you know, if you've just got an echo chamber, she's got her father, who was never in her childhood managing her career he disappeared and now and then he came aggressively back in 2008 and she very clearly said I understand the conservatorship but I don't want him anywhere near it yeah yeah you know and people have described the relationship as dysfunctional as toxic those words are very concerning to me because I would be looking at abuse actually not toxic and dysfunctional that might mask what's going on but she said very clearly she didn't want him involved and she was overruled by a judge who then replaced her lawyer with a court-appointed lawyer who she's had ever since. So she's never had an independent advocate who's in her corner or a psychiatrist or psychologist of her own choosing, which, again, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? She talked about having to go to therapy twice a week, which seems a lot to me, and seeing a psychiatrist all in one week she does that, which seems a huge amount. When you're going through therapy... It's a lot of work, isn't it? But they're not yeah, people that but, she's chosen.
3: It's probably deliberate, um, because any good therapist or, or psychiatrist or psychologist would not suggest that frequency because of how, you know, difficult that type of work is. It's re really traumatizing, it can be triggering, it can be very exhausting. So we, we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily even suggest that that's in the best interests of of a woman to do that so actually you'll probably find that it was deliberate because it makes her look so unstable like look she has to have professional involvement several times a week you know it will have been deliberate it will have been upped and upped and upped I think that one day if we ever find out the dosages of what she was on, they'll be high. They'll be really high. They'll be higher than they should be, I imagine. A lot of this is about framing her as as completely incapable of decision-making or of just having any autonomy so that they can remove it and the thing is with that is that once you remove women's autonomy under the guise of mental health issues they'll never get it back Uh, it's very difficult to get it back because you kind of have to prove that you're not crazy and the more you say you're not crazy the more crazy they say you are and the more you say that i don't want this medication the more they claim that you're refusing the medication which is more evidence that you're crazy so you can't get out Once you're in it, you can't get out. And that's, you know, that's, yes, that is for um, Britney Spears, but that's also for millions of women. I have women write to me that are in that situation right now that they've been pathologized, medicated, and given all these diagnoses they're seeing a psychiatrist, but when they turn around and go, I don't think there's anything wrong with me. I think I'm traumatized. I think that I don't want these things, and these medications make me feel ill. They're just being written up as even more delusional and crazy than they were last week. So, how do they get out? How do they get these things off their file? And, like, that is something that honestly is, if I could do something about that in my lifetime, I would consider that a massive success. Like, that would be enough for me.
2: Well, hopefully, your book will shed a light on this. And I think the timing I mean, it is serendipity and synchronicity, isn't it? That Brittany finding her voice at the time where your book's launching, talking about exactly the same thing. There is serendipity there, but like you say, it happens to many women. And I too hope that Brittany finds a way out of this and she's able to sell and tell her story in her own words rather than it being filtered or controlled through anybody else. I mean, I do have grave concerns about the coercive control and just that feeling when you feel everything's controlled and you feel hopeless and helpless, that's when we see people self-harm and think about taking their own life... I feel that I heard trauma when she did her 20-minute statements, and I heard desperation. But I hope that there is a glimmer of light for her in that this the judge did hear what she had to say unfiltered. But I do worry about what's going on behind closed doors, of what are the controls, what's being said of if you do X, then we will do Y, because we know yeah. that she was put into a... A mental health facility. When she refused to do the second Vegas residency, and and I feel she tries to take that little bit of control where she can. I even feel with the head shaving situation way back when this all began, when the Daily Mirror framed her as um, yeah. the meltdown. You know that picture yeah. of her with her shaven head and staring eyes. I felt she was framed with that too. She had just lost custody of her children, and and male celebs do far worse, by the way than get an umbrella and hit a car. And yet she was framed as this, you know, meltdown. But I feel that it was her way of taking control, of saying, I'm making myself unattractive, ugly, that you're not going to want to photograph me. I've taken my crown in glory and I'm controlling the thing that I can. But instead, she's made out to be completely mentally unstable. And then everything she does from there on out, there's now a a narrative that everyone's fitting everything to and of yes, course then right. we know that you know she's sectioned and and everything else in this conservatorship. I mean what's your thoughts Jess? 13 years seems to be a very long time to have someone in this situation when they're so young. I mean from 26 to to 39. I mean she is a mum. She has been incredibly successful. Surely, and you may not know everything about conservatorships. I had to look it up and speak to, you know, a lawyer and various other people about these conservatorships that are in California. They're guardianships in other states, but they're really for when someone has dementia or, uh, you know, cannot make. And for older people, towards the end of life, where they cannot make decisions. But surely, with a younger person like Brittany. 26 to 39 there should be a plan for her to exit this to have her own autonomy and I've not heard anything about a potential exit plan for her everyone working to her getting her own autonomy back and it seems fraught with conflict that all the people who are controlling her are are on her payroll she's paying for all of them even the lawyers eight lawyers were in that courthouse on the 23rd of june eight lawyers fighting her that she's paying for how can that ever be in her best interests?
3: it's it's not it's all it's all deliberate all of it's deliberate there's no exit plan because they don't want an exit they don't like the 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 game the end the, the sort of the end game for them is total control until they can they can't exploit her anymore basically and they can take everything you know the, the 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 key difference with her her case and her experience is that there's millions and millions of pounds within her and who she is whereas obviously with you know a lot of women that are in this situation there isn't anything like that and yet still they have immense power over these women and girls in diagnosis and control and stuff but yeah the money is a massive motivator for the you know the the entire teams the entourages and like you know her dad's team and everyone uh, around them the amount of money that he's taking as salaries as a manager and like you said the lawyers are all being paid like there's so many people on that payroll so and therefore you have an immense amount of people with a vested interest of keeping that going, right? So there is no exit plan because so nobody wants to exit it. Um but also they know that if they do give her autonomy, she will sack them all, she's gonna stop people from giving access to her, she's gonna stop particular income streams, she might go public with things that has been done to her, she might out people, she will be cut to them and to a set of perpetrators. She becomes very dangerous and they don't wanna give her that power ever. They need to frame her consistently as mentally ill so that nobody listens to her disclosures when they start coming, because that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're laying all the foundations so that when she ever says anything, won't matter if she's 70 when she says it, she'll be crazy, Brittany. she ignore her.
2: What do you think is important now going forward? Do you think public... And uh, pressure and momentum publicly is, is the way forward here, given that her fan base have been raising this for a time. We've got Christine Aguilera speaking out now. Justin Timberlake did. Her sister has finally come out. Although her sister said, I was waiting for Britney to go first. I mean, there seems to be an absence of female voices like her mom and other people around her. Do you feel that that is a very important part of the next steps of creating pressure and momentum for Brittany, because like you said, it's a very dangerous situation she's in, that those who are in control, it's not in their interest for her to ever have her own autonomy again. Yeah. That's really worrying.
3: Yeah, I... Yeah, no, so my, my main worries um, for her, and you know, it, it is, is really the risk to her from the perpetrators around her. So is she at risk of being murdered? Is she at risk of being overdosed deliberately? Is she at risk of something horrific happening to her and then them framing it as self-harm or as a suicide attempt, you know, that that is a very serious risk that needs to be considered. And then, you know, the other thing is the risk that something will happen and she will be reframed as unstable again so they can restart conservatorship or they can essentially have it... Um, like almost re-signed that no this is in her best interest and all of this needs to stop and they'd you know it wouldn't surprise me if they start suggesting that the process is traumatizing her and is impacting her mental health it's in the best interest for her to stop this process that sort of thing you know so i think that one of the most important things that could happen here is is independent insight. An independent advocacy. I think she should be entitled mm-hmm. to that. And that's something that I'm gonna spend a lot of time arguing over the next few years. I think that All all women and girls in this situation, whether you're, you know, uh, I don't know if you're a a woman who's just a a normal average woman in the UK has been given these set of diagnoses that you can't get off your case files, you don't know what to do with them, and you've got nowhere to go, no power, no one's listening to you, everyone says you're crazy so you can't get them off, like all the way up to a woman like Britney Spears, where is the independent advocacy, where are your rights? How can you be treated like this with no insight, with no scrutiny, with nobody evaluating that case except for people that have a vested interest? It makes no sense for that to be allowed. So I think there needs to be something like that. I, do, I think the fans have done amazing. I think it's about time a family stepped up and did something. However, my concern about why they might not do that is it depends how dangerous the perpetrators are around Brittany. So you, the men in charge and the men that are running this are likely to be extremely powerful and extremely dangerous. And so if the only other people who can stand up are women, they are likely to be at risk as well in some way or another. So, you know, you don't know. You don't you never know. But you, what I do know from watching this case is that her dad um, is, um, is manipulative and is uh, calculated and has spent a lot of time getting that right. You know, so he can have complete control over her and convince everybody that she's mentally ill. And he has been very successful, very successful in
2: that. Yeah. And then the fact that you're calling them perpetrators, I think, is very interesting because Brittany herself says her father should be in jail, as should the other people who've been part of this. And it is like mass gaslighting, isn't it? And I think the point about having independent advocates is so important. An ind- independent lawyer. I mean, I don't know why the judge determined that she wasn't capable of choosing her own attorney right at the beginning of all of this, because her attorney, Streisand, seemed to be very capable and competent, who had assessed her as being capable and competent of choosing an attorney, and that she was resigned to a conservatorship, but just she didn't want her father involved. Then a judge said that they had read a report, it was Judge Reva Goat's who'd said that they'd read a, read a report that deemed that Britney was incapable of choosing her own counsel. Well, that just seems against her constitutional rights to me. And now we're 13 years on, surely that has to change. Surely she has to have her independent lawyer. And I would really love her to have a psychologist like yourself, someone who's trauma-informed, working with her. If, she, if they make her go through another evaluation which they will, won't they? The likelihood is that no judge would probably allow her free of the conservatorship without some form of evaluation. Well, why can't she uh, and her counsel choose a psychologist, psychiatrist who is trauma-informed to evaluate her and, and that she gets to have a voice in that? Because she surely has a right to choose. Why should it all be about, well, everything stacked against her that's fraught with conflict anyway with Jamie Spears and others, even though she's now got the bank, who's the independent side on the financial side. But she needs someone who's an advocate on her human side, the psychological side, the emotional side, the spiritual side. That's the advocacy that she also needs. And I agree with you, other women may not feel that they can stand up, but I do feel her mum's being quite silent about all of this And her mum, Lynn, was very responsible for her career.
3: Yeah, I know. I I thought that with the documentary. And one of the things um, I I often don't, I don't tend to comment in detail about the cases that I don't know inside and out. And we don't know this one. But it does worry me that his, so Jamie, uh, Jamie Spears, who's her dad, his background and the way that he was so distant and so sort of jealous. And then he had money problems and gambling issues and drinking and all the rest of it. To be honest with you, I would be very, very surprised if he's not a domestic abuse perp. Very surprised. And I I would be very surprised if her mum doesn't feel like
2: she could say anything. And I don't... I would... She did take out a temporary restraining order when she was trying to divorce from him.
3: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. That makes sense to me. Like, You you just don't know, you know, what he's threatened. You don't know what he's done. You don't know how much power he has. And it's going to... It's going to impact
2: what she can say and what she can do um so yeah i mean there's so much more jess that we could talk about and i'm sure that i'll be asking you again to come on to unpick some of these things that we've jumped into but i really appreciate your time i appreciate you your work and also talking about britney i'm sure it's not the end of it um but i do hope the free britney movement is successful i think we all believe that she has a right to make her own decisions and have her own autonomy as a 39 year old woman. So thank you so much for your time. And in the show notes, I'll write where people can find your books. But very quickly, where can they Google them and find them should they want to buy them now? Uh,
3: Why we want to blame for everything is like everywhere. You can get it on, you know, all independent bookstores, Amazon, sort of everywhere. And you can get everything at victimfocusresources.com. So it's victimfocus-resources.com. Sexy But Psycho is now on pre-order in the UK on Amazon. Um, and it will also go on pre-order in like Waterstones, or Rich and things like that. But if you are listening to this and you are not in the UK, you can pre-order Sexy But Psycho at victimfocus-resources.com. And if if it's any use, you can use our discount code for 35% off everything, which is V. F A S three five. So um, hopefully, if we put that, if we can put that you know, somewhere useful for everybody, it's a discount code. I'll give you thirty five percent off everything. And, and so if you're, you know, international trying to pre order stuff, at least you you have uh, your shipping and some other bits covered because it can get expensive. But thank you. Excellent. I really appreciate you having me. I'm really glad that we were able to talk about it, and I would love to talk to you more about it. So thank you
2: absolutely go and have your dinner you've earned it thank you very much dr jessica taylor (laughs) thanks so i'm signing off for now and i hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for my next episode until then be curious ask questions and always trust your instincts And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Studios.